if the answers are things that were handed down to me, but not things that truly belong to me, then I am not stepping into my own agency. There is something colonized inside of me that demands that I, uh, that I belong to the person that gave it to me. You know, there is no freedom for me to just be everything that I am. So decolonizing is actually divesting from all of the colonization. It's making, it's taking away power from ideologies that have taken control over us uh, and demand that we do things in the way that they've told us to do them. Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieved. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Hello everyone, welcome to Successfulish. I'm Sarah Michelle and I'm so excited to introduce today's guest and my beautiful friend, Joe Lumen. Joe is a pastor and online theologian who is passionate about decolonization and deconstruction. And we're gonna dig a little bit into what those terms mean. Um, I first met Joe in San Diego years ago. She was uh, assistant pastoring a church that I was a participant in, and even at that time, I just always had so much admiration for the way that she carried herself, and she always had this, this feminine fire is the way that I would describe it, and every time I saw her, I just wanted to hang out with her more and wanted to be like her, and I loved the confidence that she carried herself, and it's been really fun throughout the years as we've both grown in our personal journeys and our faith journeys and our work and business journeys. And we've both been really becoming more successful-ish um, on very parallel but different platforms. And so I'm excited to, to dig into that. So Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. I love what you're doing. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. So before we jump into this conversation, what is something that you failed at this week? What are you figuring out? Yeah, I read that. I read that question. And um, you know what? Sometimes I fail, and this will make more sense in the context of further having the conversation, but sometimes I fail. And I fail this week, as I do a lot of weeks, um, at having more compassion for myself um, and expecting myself to be somewhere that I am just simply not. And you know, understanding that uh, healing and moving towards a more healed self is a it's a process and it's a lifelong thing so sometimes I'm not very compassionate and I expect more of me than you know just saying like well I responded to my trauma this week and that's that's acceptable yeah I can absolutely relate to that where do you think that comes from for you the, the lack of self-compassion, do you feel like that comes from comparison to other people and comparing your progress to theirs or just past voices? What do you think the source is of that for you? No, it's really childhood trauma. Uh, I'm the oldest of uh, a family that was divorced. My parents got divorced when I was three years old and I'm the oldest child. And I took this responsibility to be a grown up. You know, it's not something my parents put on me, but it's just something that happened due to circumstances and the tools that they had and you know and so I put this responsibility on me to be more of a grown-up that I was supposed to be I was I was supposed to be a child um so since since that there has been this expectation that I act 
perfectly and that I act more grown up and that I act more, that I behave all the time. Like there is no room to have meltdowns when you are not allowed to be a child. And meltdowns are normal for adults and children alike. But when you have not had the opportunity and the ability and have not been given the tools to have meltdowns in a healthy manner, um, then you become an adult that has unhealthy meltdowns, which means self-deprecation and you know, just being harsh on yourself. And I mean, it can mean different things to different people. For me, it means self-deprecation self-deprecation, and um, just feeling like I'm a failure, even though I, I'm just, I am just where I'm supposed to be. It's, it's fine. So yeah, I, it's more from, you know, just trauma from childhood that I'm still unpacking and learning to heal from. Yeah, I can definitely relate to a lot of that. I know I, I grew up with sort of a unique definition of perfection where, you didn't want to be a perfectionist because that's not a perfect quality. You want to have flaws, but they have to be appropriate flaws. <laughs> and so it creates a very weird success dynamic. And I think that part of becoming more successful and more comfortable with that is recognizing the metrics that we have had in our life, recognizing the metrics that someone told us at one point, this is what success looks like. And at some point, we have to become aware enough to say, well, is that really how I define success? Do I feel successful? Am I successful if I run after this? And I know that you and I both come from a world of evangelical Christianity. I know that you are still currently a pastor, um, but really religion aside, I think the process of recognizing the standards that we've grown up being told are the gold standard to go for. I think that's a universal thing that everybody experiences. And as you know, I, I don't have kids, but I imagine as a parent, the, the immediate knee-jerk goal would be to raise your children to become the success that you thought you should be. We're translating the culture that we came from. We're translating the standard from the culture that we grew up in. So from your perspective, what does that look like to, to have a standard from the culture we come from, whether it's our country or our religion, how do we even begin to be aware of what those dynamics look like? Well, a lot of the standards of success have been determined by systems that we have established. And those systems have been informed by religion and they have been informed by, you know, like, like societal uh, dynamics. Mm -hmm. So the standards that we have today are like capitalism, for instance, is one of the standards. So a lot of success is determined under the lens of capitalism. But that hasn't been the case for all of history. And so being able to ask ourselves, like, is these are standards of success that capitalism has imposed on all of us? Are those even healthy standards for us to want to submit to? Are those, are those really serving us? And can we really define success as the more power that you hoard or the more money that you hoard or the more purchase power that you have, then you are more successful. And I mean, by now we have enough evidence to say, no, that doesn't actually define success at all. That simply defines your purchase power. <laughs> that's, that's about it. Uh, but success has to be, you know, looked at through different ideologies. You know, we, we've even looked at success and this is, uh, I, I talk a lot about systems of oppression because part of deconstruction and decolonizing work, which is what I do, is recognizing the systems that are not serving us. And so one of the systems that doesn't serve us right now is white supremacy. And white supremacy, I, when I speak about that, I'm not talking about 
you know, like the KKK. I'm not talking about white people being bad because that's not that doesn't exist really. I mean, it does exist, but it's it's really outliers now. Uh, what I'm talking about is a system that has rewarded uh, whiteness, and whiteness means not only your skin color but certain um, certain characteristics. So. We define success inside of white supremacy, which means we define success inside of academia, for instance. Academia has been a white institution in the West for a very long time. So you are successful if you have a PhD, you are successful if you go to school. But in reality, we are even learning that those things aren't true either. And a lot of people that we now deem successful didn't go to school, you know, and they've actually learned things outside of school. so we are learning to challenge the, the notions and the standards of success that we've been given because we recognize and realize that those are arbitrary, really. Um, so I, for my children, I don't, I don't want to impose those um, systems on them. I don't expect that of them when I speak about success. Um, there is, and it's hard to challenge that, you know, because the world is telling them you are successful if you get straight A's. And I'm telling them, nah, no, not at all. Like that has nothing to do with the person that you are, with your success, with your character. It has nothing to do with that. I am not going to push you into fitting into certain boxes that society has demanded that you fit into when I should be paying attention to the person that you are. Absolutely. I got in big trouble one time because I was a youth leader and I it probably wasn't the smartest for me to give this advice, but I remember telling a group of kids, please get degrees. And the parents obviously were very upset because how dare you tell my child that, you know, it's all about straight A's. And my experience at the time being a college student, I got straight A's and I kind of regretted that I missed a lot of opportunity in college that I should have been socializing and having fun and going after different internships or social opportunities. And, you know, I think we get so focused on the linear successes that we miss just being happy, being adults, being individual. And one thing that I want to touch on real quick, I know that we, a lot of times we hear these words like white supremacy or Eurocentric or white privilege. And these words are very loaded and yeah. and I think that the the gut impulse is to to be offended because now it sounds like I need to apologize for being white. Like that's something that's my fault. And as a white woman, something that I hear from a lot of people is, well, I'm not privileged. You know, I've struggled and you know i had to pay for my own education i had to go through hardships so why is everything in the world my fault for being white i'm not privileged and that's not really what that means that's not really what we're talking about so can you explain a little bit of what that means that we have a eurocentric success system and what white privilege really looks like because it's not necessarily the you know, I go to the day spa and get pedicures every week. That's not, that's a different kind of privilege. That's not what we're talking about. So can you clarify a little bit when we're using that language, what we're really saying? Yeah. So white privilege definitely doesn't mean that your life is easier than anybody else's. It just means that race is not the reason why it's made harder. 
Um, you know, it means that race is not a reason why you've been discriminated against and that quite the opposite, that there are certain um, notions and certain biases about you that are positive because of your race. So there is assumptions that you are more trustworthy. There is assumptions that you are healthier. There is assumptions that you know how to, to raise your children. Um, there is all of these assumptions about you that are positive biases that we have given to, you know, societally to everyone because of your race. And those are biases that black and brown people and Asian people and uh, do not have. Um, so I am a Colombian woman, I, am, I have brown skin. And the amount of times that I get parenting advice, unsolicited parenting advice, and I know that this is true for all moms in general and all parents, uh, but I get a lot of advice from white moms because I, I have a different parenting style because I was raised in a different country and because our standards are a little bit different and we are a lot more laid back. We are less protective. We don't uh, like the, uh, what is it called? The, what are those? Helicopter. Oh, like, right? Helicopter moms. Yeah, so I, I, that's not, it's not normal in Colombia. Well, now it's more, you know, because of the influence of, of the US really. Um, but when I was growing up, it wasn't at all. And, and so it, it is that, you know, the assumption that I am not a good mom based on the color of my skin, um, more than based on how I'm raising my actual children. I like, you know, you're not here. And then that happens also, it's easier to explain it with, with men and women. So my husband gets celebrated because he changes diapers, for instance. So you're like, he's just such a good dad. He changed their diaper. He's just such a good dad. But women, we have to literally jump through hoops for anybody to acknowledge that we are good mothers. Um, you know, so the expectation of men and women is very different inside of parenting and inside of the world. There are um, like the standard for men is a lot lower. You know, it's a lot easier for them to get accolades and to be exceptional and to be clapped for. Uh, and, and women, we have to prove our worth. We have to prove ourselves. We have to prove that we are smart. People have more of like, they don't give us the benefit of the doubt. It's like, uh, are you sure that that's true? Like, where did you learn that? It could not possibly be just our genius. Um, so it happens in the same way with race, you know? So white is the standard inside of white supremacy. Therefore, they are understood to be what everybody should aspire to become, not as far as skin color, as far as behavior. Um, so, and even skin color. I mean, if you look worldwide, there are people that are, that use, you know, lightning creams and all of that. And that comes from this, this culture. But we also then have to talk about different privileges, like wealth privilege. And, you know, if you're wealthy, um, you may not be, you may have more privilege as far as wealth, even if you're not white, you know? Um, so privilege changes about the, depending on the identities that you hold. Uh, so we have to be aware of that. And I hold some privileges that some white people don't hold. Um, but I also recognize that race is not one of those privileges. Right. I, it's interesting because I think so much of what we learn is from our culture and our heritage. And it's a as an identity strategist who's constantly in this space, I think what I find really interesting is that, you know, as a kid, obviously it's up to your parents kind of to tell you who you are. It's you're born into this world and it's the adults that are telling you, this is how it should be. This is right. This is wrong. That's a process of being raised in the understanding what's normal and what's okay. At some point, we become an adult and we have to flip this switch where now we have to change from letting the world tell us who we are to us telling the world who we are. And I think that that is a moment that we don't really learn 
how to do. It's something that we have to find on our own. And I know that you have talked a lot about self-betrayal and getting to a place of honoring ourselves and not betraying ourselves. How did you get to that realization in your life? Share a little bit about your story and just how you got to a place of separating out culture and standards from who you really are and learning how to recognize your own metrics. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that parenting is about telling your kids who they are. Uh, it is, it has been that historically, and it was that for me growing up. I think parenting is about giving your children tools to discover who they are themselves and stop pushing them into what you want them to be. Because really, if you're telling someone who they are, you're just pushing them into who you believe they should be. I cannot tell any of my children, I have four kids and I cannot tell any of them who they are. I don't know that. I don't. I am the person that spends the most time with them. They were inside of my body. I birthed them and I've been with them from day one and I cannot tell them who they are because I don't know. The only person that holds that knowledge is themselves. My job is to help them be confident enough to unearth that reality as their mom and as a good friend and as a good pastor and as a good human. That's our, that's, that's what we do in the lives of others. You know, we don't insert ourselves and put our expectations of who another should be or should do. That's why I don't like unsolicited advice. Uh, because unsolicited advice is usually people telling me what they think I should do without being myself. You, I can't do what you want me to do because you are not me. Um, so the, the not betrayal of yourself and learning that I had been conditioned into all of these, you know, expectations that others had of me, that I had been my whole life responding to, well, this is what everybody expects me to be. And I didn't, that wasn't conscious. It was unconsciously you know, I was just like, this is what everybody expects me to be. So that's what I am going to do. Um, and also recognizing that a lot of my decisions, a lot of my choices were not coming out of my true self, which I, what I called my true self, which is the healed version of ourselves, but it was coming out of trauma. I was trying to appease my parents, or I was trying to appease my boss, or I was trying to silence that voice that was telling me that I wasn't doing enough, that I wasn't worth anything so I was I was a workaholic really because it was a way to appease the trauma of feeling like I wasn't good enough and this is you know this comes from childhood this comes from uh, the, the the narrative of you're not good enough is is being told to us many times throughout our lives and we internalize that and then we start acting in such a way that we're proving to the world that we are indeed enough when we don't have to what we need to do is heal so that we recognize we are enough and we get to show up in the world as our true selves. We don't have anything to prove. All we get to do now is be the person that we are supposed to be. So self-betrayal for me became this thing where it was me doing things for the, for the to cope in a negative way, like to cope from trauma, to appease other people, to make other people comfortable for so that I would get their approval and their acceptance. Um, so that I would belong to groups or to people, including the church. You know, I, I don't belong to evangelical spaces anymore because it included me betraying myself. And I, I refuse to betray myself any longer. And the only way that you can stop betraying yourself is if you learn to belong to yourself more than you belong anywhere else. Because if you don't belong to yourself, you will continue to find belonging. Belonging is intrinsic. We need belonging. We you humans, you know, we're created for belonging. Uh, we are gregarious, so we cannot exist alone. So 
if I am looking for belonging elsewhere, I will betray myself in order to belong. But if I recognize and I'm able to heal so that I know my belonging begins with me, I belong to myself first and foremost. And from that belonging, any other belonging is an added bonus. Uh, so I get to show up in spaces as my true self, you know, because if I belong to spaces by betraying myself, it is not me who belongs, but the version that they created of me that is belonging. But my true self is not belonging anywhere because it doesn't even belong to me. I can't, I can't even accept myself. So self-betrayal to me became a huge part of the puzzle of I will not betray myself to belong anymore if it includes not belonging to my true self uh, and recognizing who is my true self, you know, like why that's where the conversation of deconstruction and decolonizing becomes important because deconstruction and decolonizing are how you discover who you really are. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's such a, it's such a challenging thing, especially as kids when we really want to fit in. And I know I've, I've referenced before feeling like the the little, I think it was a bird in the Dr. Seuss story of Are You My Mother? And that was really my childhood experience of walking from group to group. Like, are you my people? Are you my people? Am I, am I a jock? Am I a smart kid? Am I a religious kid? And it took years for me to realize that maybe I didn't need to change who I was to fit into a group. And if I did, that's probably not my group. And right the more that I've learned to get back to who I really am. And I've said, actually, I want to take from all these pieces and be this unique thing. I found that my tribe has grown because there are people all over the world who are also looking for that. And when we can be ourselves, we give someone else that beautiful gift of having the freedom to be themselves. Yeah. I think that is a beautiful thing. I, I want to talk a little bit about defining some of these terms because so much of this language just has such heavy connotations. And I really wanna talk about just a starting point of being on the same page with the vernacular and the vocabulary. So the first one that I wanna talk about is trauma. And you've mentioned having childhood trauma. And typically when we think about trauma or we think about abuse, there are these heavy words and we think that it is some really dramatic thing. And so because of that, I think many of us don't associate ourselves as trauma victims right. because our lives have been okay. We haven't really had any major thing. And there is a difference between a, a big macro trauma and micro traumas. And yeah. for many of us, we grow up with micro traumas. We grew up with these little tiny things that individually wouldn't really be a big deal, but it's the piling them together that for many of us, we grow up with so much trauma that we think is normal. So can you explain a little bit, how do you define trauma and how can we begin to recognize whether or not, and I don't even think it's whether or not, I think everyone has trauma in some degree, but how can we recognize what trauma we have and where that sits? Yeah. So um, there are a couple of good ways for me to define, like that have been good for me to define trauma, um, to remember. And then one of them is um, harm, unaddressed harm. So one-time harm is, you know, one-time harm. And it may be trauma, but it may not be trauma. And that's okay. So one time of my, you know, as a child being told, like if I'm in school and I am told something, that can be a one-time thing and it might not amount to anything. But if it's unaddressed, it becomes trauma, complex trauma too. But trauma is loss of safety, really. 
So anytime there is loss of safety where you don't feel secure, then what happens inside of your body, it's not just a, a psychological thing, but it's also happening like it's a biological thing too. Your body is shooting all of this information. Your nervous system is shut down. Your, you know, your, there are two nervous systems, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And the sympathetic nervous system is the, the nervous system that is in the fight flight response. And every time you lose safety, your sympathetic nervous system is alerted. And if you are in the sympathetic nervous system constantly, because you are in spaces where it's not safe to be you, where it's not safe to exist, where you have to all the time, you're in fight flight mode. Like if I say that, what will happen? If I do that, what will happen? Then we're speaking about complex trauma and we're speaking about the upbringing of most people. You know, how many people are afraid of, were afraid of their parents, afraid of consequences, afraid of their peers and how they would act around them, you know, all the time editing themselves so that they would not get consequences. That's loss of safety all the time. Uh, now there are more complex versions of that, which is, you know, abusive homes and like physically abusive homes is what I'm talking about. When we're talking about domestic violence, then that is extreme loss of loss of safety too. But it can happen in the small, in the, if every time I speak up, my, my parent screams at me. Um, if I am afraid to ask for anything, like, because they are, you know, they are going to be angry. Uh, if my, if I am bullied in school, like made fun of because of how I look or because of something I did. All of that is, you know, trauma. So we all experience trauma. We all experience loss of safety. The difference between the healthy and the unhealthy ways of experiencing trauma is the tools that you have. So if the only thing that you know how to do is to shove it in, guard it and try to pretend it didn't happen or, you know, like hide it, hide from it, um, you internalize all of that trauma. But if you have the tools and the people in your life that help you process that trauma so that you can just relax and not keep reliving it and it doesn't shape your personality, um, then you have the right tools. But we all experience trauma in life. We all experience loss of safety. Our nervous system is created in such a way that we have, um, you know, it's created in such a way that we are protected from trauma. Like you lose safety, your system just shoots up and then you, it's protecting you. The problem is when that becomes your norm, when that becomes like, this is the way that I show up in the world all the time because loss of safety is my norm. It's the, it's the way in which I have to exist in the world. Right, and I think that that is a really good point to make that everybody experiences trauma and that loss of safety isn't just physically, that can be psychologically. Right. And that goes back to what you were saying about systems is if we have a system that says that you have to learn a certain way to get straight A's, to be good enough, to be functional in society, but that's not how we think, that's a lack of safety because now I can't really be myself. Right. And that, that weighs on us. And for, for many of the smartest people who have accomplished the most, they did not do well traditionally in school yeah. because they don't think that way. We're not wired that way. And I think being able to talk about trauma as a normal thing without feeling like we need to compound that with shame, like there's something wrong with us for being a trauma victim or, you know, to look down on that and just to recognize this is just a part of society that we have to look into. And part of that, I think, looks like decolonizing and deconstructing, which are terms that have become a little bit more buzzword in the last year or so, but can you explain a little bit what is colonization, decolonization, deconstruction? What does that mean and what does that look like? Yeah. So colonization is the process of setting in, like settling and taking control over someone else's domain. 
of course, when we talk about that, we think about you know the, the time of colonization 500 years ago when European countries were colonizing the world, but that goes beyond that. It's the process of settling in and taking control over someone else's domain. And that includes individual domains. That includes me, like what I was talking about parenting, that includes me coming in and taking over my child's individuality and agency and saying, this is what you're supposed to be, become, behave like. That is also, a, 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 you know, it's, it's a type of colonization. It comes from the colonizer mindset. So deconstruction, which is the, the first one, deconstruction is asking, is the process of asking questions, of asking why we believe the things that we believe, why we do the things that we do, uh, and, and asking whether this serves us or not. Is this good for me or not? Why do I behave this way? Why did I, why did I become a, a pastor, for instance? I had to ask myself that at one point. Why, why am I a Christian? Why do I believe in Christianity? Like, what is it about it that I want to still align myself with? And if the answers are things that were handed down to me, but not things that truly belong to me, then I am not stepping into my own agency. There is something colonized inside of me that demands that I, uh, that I belong to the person that gave it to me. You know, there is no freedom for me to just be everything that I am. So decolonizing is actually divesting from all of the colonization. It's making, it's taking away power from ideologies that have taken control over us uh, and demand that we do things in the way that they've told us to do them. Decolonizing is divesting from the, the powers of, of oppression over us. You know, it's, it's these women are supposed to act this way and we are and we look back and say, no, we're not. We get to just be individuals or parenting is supposed to look this way. And no, we're not. Or marriage is supposed to look this way. And I'm supposed to be submissive. You know, that's something that is taught inside of um, some evangelical circles, a lot of evangelical circles and some fundamental Christianity. Women are supposed to be submissive. And we get to sit down and say, why? Like, where is that coming from? And that doesn't serve me. And it actually doesn't come naturally to me. <laughs> so why am I going to go against, you know? And, and then we take it further because this is beyond Christianity. It's we are going to have to talk about why, why do I want to measure success by, you know, the way that, like, how much money is in my bank? Why am I going to talk about like these biases that I have about disabled people or beauty standards? Why do we believe those things? And I don't want to continue to associate those ideas with me. Like, I don't want to continue to judge myself based on my size, based on the way my face looks, based on how much makeup I have or lack of makeup I have. I want to be able to become my true self. So I need to divest and say, Every single decision that I make and every single step that I take in my life has to come from my healed self. And it has to stop coming from the indoctrination, the insecurities and the societal conditioning that we've all been shoved into. That's the process of deconstruction and decolonizing um, that we, you know, that we go to, like we go through to be able to become our true selves. Yeah, I love that. And you know who I think is really good at modeling that is kids. Yes. Especially the kids that are in that three to five age range that just ask why. Yeah. Why? Why? And it can feel a little overwhelming if you're hearing that all the time. But I think that's part of being more successful in our deconstruction is that I've had to learn to ask why. Right. Why do I believe this? And whether it's something little, like if I'm if I'm working with clients and they try to tell me why they have to do certain things in their business or why their business has to look a certain way. And then I ask them why? Well, because that's just, that's what I'm supposed to do. 
Okay, right? who, who said? Who told you that that's, and if someone is already doing that, why are you doing that? If someone's already in that business, we don't really need you. Someone's right. already feeling that need. What we need is for you to be you. And I think that it's really important, especially as we're going through life and in the way that parenting and society is structured, I almost feel like we come into this world with a name tag of who we are. And as we're going through life, people are constantly adding these other name labels of, you know, the hi, my name is stickers, the visual I have in my head of, oh, she's outspoken, she's a Christian, she's intelligent, she's athletic, or he's really snarky, he's sarcastic, he's lazy. We have all these words and adjectives and we just kind of walk around with this name tag soup, not really knowing who we are and just taking it at face value. And at some point, I think we really need to look at the labels and hold them and say, well, is this true? Where did this come from? Is this about a specific time in my life and now it's no longer relevant? Is this from one person's perspective and it's not fair? And I think that that is really important. So what does it look like to be able to unlearn and kind of almost reparent ourselves? What does that process look like to be able to to start unlearning maybe some of the beliefs that no longer serve us? Yeah, that, it's exactly that what, you're, what you said, reparenting. It's, it's the process of reparenting ourselves and coming back to the person that we were created to be, you know, to, to borrow from some of the theological language of my own background. It's becoming the image of God that we were created in. Um, and that can mean many other different things. But we, when we're talking about that, we're talking about awareness and consciousness. Um, so we, you know, the, the, the problem, the big problem that I have with a lot of the Christianity that we've been handed down and a lot of the ideologies that we're handing down in school too, is that they invite you to stop being conscious and aware. And what they say is, look, I'm going to give you a list of things and a, a, a list to follow. And all you have to do is just do these things and then you're good. Like high five, you made it. Um, so we shut down our own consciousness and awareness and we just follow these lists and we just follow these rules. Uh, but if we are not able to awaken and become awakened beings that every day are making decisions that are conscious decisions and not living kind of in these um, um, like pilot, what is that? The pilot in the airplanes, the autopilot. If we're not living on this autopilot mode where it's like, well, that this is just the path that was kind of given to me. So I wake up and I go to work and I do the things, the same things every day. And I react to my family members. I react to my own self. And I have these unchecked thoughts in my brain all the time. Um, then we will continue to recreate the same things that we were given. You know, we will continue to respond to our trauma all the time subconsciously instead of being able to consciously say, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Why am I upset? Uh, why am I feeling this way? Why am I responding this way? Why am I feeling down or whatever it is? You know, I recognize, for instance, that December is my least favorite month of the year always. And it's, and I had to become conscious of that. And, you know, I, I thought it was because I hate, I'm an immigrant and I hated being away from family during the season. And then I recognized that it's not that because when I was in Colombia, I also hated December. And so I just hate it more now. Like I have more reason to hate it more. And I recognized that there is all of these expectations of me throughout this holiday season. And then as I became a mom, there were even more. And there is all of this, like, it feels like I'm drowning all the time in December. So I've had to actively and consciously 
you know, stop doing certain things in December. And if I don't want to set up a tree one year, I won't. And if I don't want to do certain things, then I won't. And, and being able to give yourself permission to do things differently so that I may have all these labels, you know, that like you were saying, they put all these labels on you. And some of them might actually fit, but some of them may not fit forever. And I give myself permission to say, I don't want to do this right now. Maybe I'll go back to that label, but right now I don't want to. Um, so that that happens with me, for instance, with Christianity. I, people ask me, why are you still a Christian after seeing all the abuse and trauma that you've seen inside of the church? Not only by myself, like not only the one I've received, but the ones that I've been able to hear and, you know, walk with people through. And I say, well, right now I am, but it's not a label that I hold so tightly. Like if tomorrow I don't want to be a Christian anymore, then I'm not because those labels are not what define who I am. You know, like I, sure, I am a mother, but that label doesn't define who I am. Who I am goes much deeper than that. So being able to unlearn the, the labels and the, the adjacency to those labels and to say, I get to change because mature people evolve and change and give themselves permission to change their mind when they are presented with new information. Uh, that's that's maturity, that's growth. And the the alternative to unlearning is continuing and perpetuating the same thing over and over and over again. And chances are that's not gonna serve us forever because that means that we're, we've not evolved. We're not moving forward. We are not changing. Um, the goal is to change, to evolve, to learn, to grow, to expand. I like the word expand a lot. Uh, it's the I have a word for the year and it was the word for 2020. And I think I'm gonna carry it on because 2020, was a weird year. So um, expand, you know, if we are not expanding, then we are not unlearning. I see it as, uh, I, I talked about this with someone recently. I see it as a slime. You know, my kids love working with slime and doing slime. If you put slime in a container, it'll stay there. It will do nothing. It will touch nothing. It will change nothing. But when you put slime, my, my children love to leave slime on the table. Slime expands and takes over, like it gets expanding and expanding and taking over space and as it's supposed to, you know? And so the containers that we put ourselves in will determine the space that we become, the person that we become, the, the shape that we take. But if we pull ourselves out of those containers and see where our body and our imagination and our psyche and our, our true self takes us, it'll require for us to unlearn the boxes and the containers. It'll require for us to be able to just become the one that we're supposed to become. Right, and I think that's a, a really beautiful freedom to understand that we can continue growing. Because I know I, I sort of had this understanding, I think many of us do that you, once you're 18, you're done. Because our society says you're a kid and then you're an adult. And there's these expectations and it's almost like you have to apologize if you change your mind about something. Yeah. People look at you like, oh, well, were you a liar? Did you not believe what you said all those years? Like, no, I just have more data now than yeah. I did then. I am growing. And I think that that is a really good thing to be able to continually check in, to continually grow, to continually evolve and discover new pieces. Yeah. And a lot of that data comes from personal experience. So it's not data you can read, you know, like it's not data that you can consume. It's data that becomes, it, it's personal experience and it changes you and it should, it transforms you, um, you know? So not changing. I think that the most offensive thing anybody can say to me is you haven't changed. Like 
oh, that sounds terrible. Like I want to change. I want to evolve. I want to allow for my circumstances, for my experiences and for the experiences of people around me when they share them with me, when they trust me with them. I want them to change me. Uh, I want them to inform me so that I can make decisions with more information that are going to harm less people. Right. And I, I think that that is a really freeing space. And I, for me, a, there was a lot of emotion that came with the process of deconstructing and having those ideas of child and adult on different spectrums or failure and success on opposite spectrums. And really learning, I mean, that's the heart behind successful is just living in the middle, but finding the permission and space to be in the middle because I, and maybe you can relate to this, but when I decided to start deconstructing and questioning some foundational beliefs that had been really my identity, they were weighted more heavily than they should have been. It was really my identity. And in my thirties, when I started realizing, you know what, I don't think that a lot of this is actually healthy or right or accurate. I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of anger towards people who I trusted to guide and mentor and raise me who I felt had steered me wrong. I had a lot of anger towards myself of, well, was I just stupid to believe this stuff that now I see so clearly isn't accurate. Um, and I think learning to recognize the process of continual growth for me helped me navigate through some of that anger and self-loathing and realizing I just have more data than I used to have. I am curious if you went through different emotions. I know so many different emotions come out through navigating trauma, through unlearning, through, you know, revisiting childhood, which is a part of our life that we thought that we let go of a long time ago. How do you navigate those different emotions as they come up? Yeah, I, you know, that's, that's where, um, that's where the self, the, the compassion component comes in, you know, and recognizing that I did, I have a lot of, I had a lot of anger. And I remember thinking like, how could I not see the abuse that I was being subjected to, too? Like, how could I not walk away sooner? How could I not, you know, make different decisions? Why did I do the things that I do just to appease, you know, somebody else? Like, I don't get it. But then recognizing that you, I was doing the best I could with the tools I had. I was genuine, honestly, I was. This, the choices I was making were genuine choices with the tools that I had, with the trauma that I was under, with the lack of resources that I had at the time. And, and then that allowed for me to be compassionate with everybody else too. Because I know my parents did the best that they could with the tools that they had. And I can hold, because see, dualities don't serve us. Like duality mentality is something that actually was, it's, it's very common inside of our society in the West. Very common to have this dualism, you know, like good or bad, successful or not all of these, you know, binaries and uh, being able to walk away from that and hold two things at the same time. Like we can hold two things at the same time. So I can recognize that my parents did the best they could with the tools they had given the trauma that they had been under their whole lives. And they also harmed me. They traumatized me. I can hold both. I can do that. And I can hold both for myself too. I did the best I could with the tools that I had. And also I harmed myself and I was insecure and I was, you know, coming out of just 
ego, my ego was all over the place. I can recognize those two things. And, and I wasn't being ego, like my ego wasn't all over the place because I'm a bad person, but because it was the only way I knew how to protect myself inside of a system that was trying to destroy me. It wasn't people trying to destroy me, the, the system was, because it was demanding that I be something that I simply cannot be. I just cannot be. So I can, I learned to hold these uh, complex both things. I can be happy and sad at the same time. No, it is not impossible. I can be proud of myself and also disappointed at the same time. I can be compassionate towards myself in some areas and at the same time be treat, like really truly harsh with myself. So being able to hold complex, you know, more nuanced emotions and complex and more nuanced realities uh, is only a, like it's only possible if you're able to deconstruct dualism too. And say like, it's not that I'm good or bad, like good or bad doesn't exist. People are not good or bad. People have enough tools and enough resources to be able to look good because it doesn't mean that they are good. It means that they look good or they don't, right. you know, they simply don't, but we all make complex decisions and we all are trying, most of us, you know, mm -hmm. like, yes, there are psychopaths and sociopaths. And when we talk about them first, they are very, it's not common. And second, we're talking about severe extreme trauma. Uh, but most of us are making the best we can with the tools we have, the knowledge we have, the accessibility to resources that we have. And we have to understand that, you know? So I hold a lot of compassion for, my, for myself. So when I think of myself as a child or as the person that I was in my 20s, making all the decisions I was making in my 20s, getting straight A's and crying if I got a B, uh, I hold myself with compassion too. And I, I try, you know, sometimes I don't, but I try to say I was doing the best I can to survive my own trauma without much, like without many tools. So it it helps me walk away. And also, you know, I wish I would have known better. Like I can hold both things. It doesn't have to be clear cut. Yeah, and I think that that honesty and authenticity really makes a difference too. And we, we all have to go through a process. And when I think back of people in my past, I can think of people, you know, even even our interactions, you know, I, I know that we both were in a very religious space when I sought advice from you that I think now we would both say was not good advice. Right. It was what I needed at that time because that's where we were at in the journey. Right. And watching both of us be able to grow, like I'm still able to be thankful that I was able to see you go through the process because it gave me a roadmap to go through the process. And one example of that, that I think is really strong is Josh Harris, who wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, mm -hmm. who has since unpublished the book, apologized for, you know, quote, ruining an entire generation. And I admired him in high school and college. I totally adhered to that philosophy and I, that for me was, oh, this is good wisdom that I'm gonna run after. Yeah. I also really admired when he took it back and I watched him un, you know, deconstruct that process. And I also needed that at that time. Yeah. And I think that something like that, I know that he has expressed regret for what he did, but I also, I would not have the same wisdom and insight from him now if I didn't walk with him then. And I think that that is an important thing of, we all are going through a process and just because we give advice based on bad information or because we make a mistake, 
that does not disqualify us from bringing positivity into someone else's life. Maybe someone needs to walk through that journey with us. Maybe someone needs to see us change our mind and walk through that. Yeah. And I've had to deal with that, you know, inside of the evangelical world, when I was a pastor, I gave a lot of advice that today I would not, like, I would not give at all. Uh, Today, I would tell myself like, nope, stop, like, don't, what you're saying is terrible. Uh, But, and I remember back then feeling uncomfortable with some of the things that I had to push, like the whole, you have to work a lot of the church, like go to church every Sunday. I, I remember feeling uncomfortable because when I was talking to people that had you know, intense jobs, like they were working 70 hours a week. And then I was like, it's really important that you show up on Sundays. And I remember feeling like that is so strange. Like I, I, I knew, but, and that's where the betrayal came, but I was betraying that inner wisdom that I was like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable because fitting into the system demanded that I said those things. Yeah. And so that's why we're, where we have to then dismantle the systems because so long as people are inside of the system they will betray themselves to belong yeah Uh, like unsafe spaces and unhealthy spaces will demand that you betray yourself and the problem is that you cannot heal inside of spaces like that and i mean a lot of societies are like that a lot of our homes are like that a lot of our marriages are like that so inside of at the biological level even if you don't feel safe you cannot heal like your body is unable to actually physically heal unless you feel safe so what does it look like then for us to become safe spaces for ourselves and safe spaces for then everybody around us and if we're betraying ourselves we're not safe because we're not even safe for ourselves so it's important to do this, this work because it extends the reach of safety and therefore it extends the reach of healing that we can do not only at the individual level, but at the societal level. It goes beyond us. And one thing that I think it's easier to recognize the more drastic places that we are self-betraying ourselves, but a lot of times I think we get stuck in the really subtle places. And one place that I see is when we're using the same word, but we weight it differently. And so I don't know if, I imagine you can relate to some of this, but being told growing up, there were certain words that were used to describe me, like contentious, argumentative, abrasive. And I believed those words because I could see the evidence that people were pointing at, but that was not my intention or how I was defining it. I really was just trying to be myself yeah. protect myself and keep myself, keep myself safe. And it wasn't that I was looking to be contentious. It wasn't that I wanted to argue. I just wanted to share perspective. And I think that was a place of self-betrayal where, you know, even, you know, you mentioned having the label of Christian and people have different weights to that. And that was a place that I had betrayal because for me, I had this idea of, okay, this is what it looks like for me to be a Christian. But then I had other people saying, well, no, this is what it means to me to be a Christian. So that's what it has to mean to you. Right. Looking at them and saying, well, gosh, they say it so confidently. I guess they're right. So I guess I do have to adapt their definition of this. So I'm curious what your experience has been with that, of having to sort through, maybe having different definitions for the words that have been put on you and having to reframe and step back and maybe say, no, like I being contentious I don't see as a bad thing because I know my heart and my intention yeah well uh, uh, in different ways like I've, I've been told I'm rebellious a lot my whole life I've been told I'm rebellious and 
you know, being rebellious is kind of like a crime inside of the Christian world. Um, so I try really hard not to be rebellious until I realize that's who I am. Like, I will rebel against things that you're supposed to rebel against. Like, aren't we supposed to rebel against abuse? Aren't we supposed to rebel against things that are not working, that are harming other people? Um, so I, re I decided to embrace some of them. Like, now I'm called a heretic a lot. And I'm like, yeah, I am total heretic. Because if not being a heretic means going along with all these ideologies and theologies and, and I like, you know, doctrines that are harmful to other people, then yeah, I'm a heretic. Like, I will happily... Um, enter into that and be the heretic that you think I am like I, I don't feel any shame about being the about being who I am and I think that that's the the thing you know they want to they want to use these labels to shame us into submission um and I don't allow shame like anything I I think that shame has become a red flag for me if shame is there is a difference between feeling shame and being shamed so if I feel shame that comes from within me is because I've harmed somebody and that's good and I should and I should lean into that and apologize and make amends the best that I can. But if somebody else wants me to feel shame and they are trying to shame me, I reject that. It's a red flag for me and it's more of a, I let me step more into who I am. And if it bothers you, you have two options to walk away or to accept who I am. But there is not the third option of me accommodating to you. Like, that's just not going to happen because I don't ask those those things of you. So you don't get to ask that of me. Um, so I think that recognizing the difference between am I feeling shame because I did something that's harmful and that's genuine or I somebody demanding that I am ashamed for something that I should not feel shame for. Uh, like I, I am who I am. I, I am contentious and I am rebellious and I say things sometimes in ways that are direct. I like assertive communication. So when people tell me like, you're just really aggressive, I say, no, I am assertive. There is a big difference between assertiveness and aggressive. Aggressive means that I'm harming you, that I am being abusive towards you, but I am saying the things that I need to say in an assertive way. And you are so used to passive aggressive communication that assertive feels aggressive. Right. This is just assertive. And so a lot of it comes from, you know, being, being able to be, like healthy enough to know who I am and also healthy enough to listen because sometimes I could be aggressive. And I think that the, the person that it comes from matters too. If it's someone that has a lot more privilege than me, you know, talking again about privilege, if it's someone that has a lot more privilege and power than me and they are trying to silence me, it often means that they are just uncomfortable with what I'm saying. But if someone that has a lot less privilege than me is telling me like, when you said that it really harmed I can probably see, like, it's gonna probably be true. I did some harm, you know? So if a trans black woman tells me your use of that language was harmful towards our community, I am not a trans black woman. I have more power societally, you know? Uh, the fake power that we've created, these hierarchies of power. Societally, I have more power as a cisgender woman than she does. Therefore, I will listen to her and I will say, please forgive me. And I will feel shame and I will lean into that shame so that I can do better. Uh, but recognizing who is it coming from and is this something that I need to listen to or something that is like, you're just trying to silence me and I won't allow it. Like, I just won't allow it and I don't have to. Yeah. And when someone is a safe and healthy person, I mean, if someone confronts me about something or has a different viewpoint of me, my reaction is not to be angry or to call them names or to tell them to shut up. Like, 
I want to have a conversation. And even if I adamantly disagree with someone, you're either going to open my perspective and open my mind to think about things differently, or you're going to make me feel more confident in how I felt to begin with. I don't see harm in that. And I think that that's something we really can be more, we can stand to learn to be more comfortable with in this society. Uh, When we have that, it's not even self-assurance, but just that peace in who we are and that security and we're safe we can allow that to other people and we really can benefit from other perspectives. Yeah. So I know that we, we've, we've dove into so many intense topics and issues. And I know that the process of deconstruction, at least for me, was almost this overwhelming avalanche of emotion and thought, and it, it quickly tumbleweeds one to another. What would your advice be for someone of where to start if there's just one piece to, to start deconstructing without getting completely overwhelmed with having to do everything at once, where's the one place that you would advise someone start with? Well, the way that I started and that I think it's really helpful was giving myself permission to ask the things that I knew were already in my head, but I was too afraid to ask out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the only safe way that you can do that is by journaling them, then journal them. If you need a therapist to process them, then get a therapist. It wasn't with a therapist for me. I journaled uh, and I was able to say out loud, like, I need to speak these things out. This doesn't sit well with me. Uh, even if they are super deep held beliefs that are your identity, like you were saying, you know, and your brain is going to fire all these warning signs so one of the tools that was really helpful for me to learn was the backfire effect and the backfire effect is something that happens in your brain that when you challenge a deep held belief or somebody challenges a deep held belief your brain reacts in the same way that it would if a bear was attacking you so it shuts down your capabilities or your ability to think uh rationally and it just goes into fight flight mode into protect mode your amygdala starts shooting all these um Uh, chemicals through your body your stomach gets tight and you just start you know trying to defend your position uh recognize that and breathe through it it takes 90 seconds for an emotion to move through your body if you're able to breathe through it and remind yourself that you're safe this is safe i'm a safe space i can ask these questions it's going to be okay breathe through it walk away and then come back and continue to ask the questions and it's it's a you know it's an evolving process it's gonna take your whole entire life um so the a good way is give yourself permission to ask the questions that you know you have inside of you anyways and find a safe space to be able to do that and that the only safe space might just be you and that's okay um you're gonna find more you know it's it's Brené Brown Cole said walking into the wilderness braving the wilderness having the courage to walk into uncertainty and you know saying i do not know what i'm going to believe at the end of this i do not know where i'm going to land at the end of this but the reality is that what what i have right now is not good it's not serving me and i have too many questions so walking to the wilderness braving the wilderness is the process that you have to go through to be able to find who you really are yeah and it is okay to say i don't know yeah oh yes does not mean that you have to commit to the response in that moment. It is okay to take some time and process things. You know, most of us 18 to 20, 30, 40, however many years we've been around to form our beliefs, it's going to take more than a day. Yeah. 
I there is like people ask me all the time inside of the Christian world, there is is it very important to know what happens after we die? And people ask me all the time, like, what do you believe happens after we die? I don't know. I still don't know. And honestly, I don't think I will ever know. And I feel okay with that. I I feel completely fine with that. And wherever you whatever you want to believe happens after you die, so long as it's not a belief that harms you or others, believe that, you know, like there is I, it's fine but giving yourself permission to say i don't know and that's okay i don't need to know there are things that we just don't have to know not right now at least yeah absolutely well joe thank you so much for your time and your expertise and um for anyone listening i will drop her her info below if you want to connect with her content she's an amazing resource through the process of deconstruction decolonization and if you have thoughts, questions, experiences about this, um, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at embracetheish at gmail.com or hang out with us online at successfulish.com or Facebook, Instagram at embracetheish. Success and failure, none of opposite ends. Curveball hits, gotta know where to bend. The attitude will affect destination. Interview determines when you're gonna make it. Live between successes, makes life rich. Live in every moment, successfulish. Live between successes, makes life rich. Live in every moment, successfulish. Hey, successfulish. Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back. Reinvest hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Successfulish. Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions of see. Successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. All this weight on my arms need both flex. In this race, put behind me most steps. Had a sort of learning curve, hope I don't crash. Hit your nerves when reserves got low cash. When I fail, realize that it won't last. You made it through when the past just Look back, successful list. You can see how the contrast fires and wins. Use the past and the bounce back. You can never win if you never go and do it. Failure is a hard road, rarely ever cruising. Embracing all my wins with a handful of losing. Expect the drought season when the plan's going fluent. I can never really feel it's all how you view it. It's all a lesson, just depends how you use it. Get all the data and keep it all exclusive. Never ending journey and the growth is therapeutic. My identity is not in what you see. I am the better me. Mistakes others make, I see. Have a teacher me. Compare yourself to others is an insult to tragedy. We will make unique, gotta use again collectively. Broke down my goals in a few look. Toastum. Can't take it back cause you already spoke em. Easily regressive, you don't stay focused Focus, live between success every moment Successfully Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete I'm successfulish Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions of see I'm successfulish Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve Successfulish Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve Successfulish Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete Successfulish Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions of See, I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieved. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. <laughs>